This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. President Donald Trump and Senator Bernie Sanders have turned populism into a powerful political tool. What happened that has enabled this move from professionalism to pitchforks? We talked to MIT professor Darren Asimoglu, whose new book and writings address this phenomenon. Joining us is Dr. Darren Osamoglu, a professor of economics at MIT. He is the author of the recently published book, The Narrow Corridor, States, Societies, and the Fate of Liberty, and also the co-author of The Upside of Populism, which is adapted from the book and in the fall 2019 issue of Foreign Policy. Professor, welcome to Political Theater. Thank you for inviting me. It's a great pleasure to be on the show. The thing that I was intrigued about uh, the, the, the premise of your, your article, the premise of your book, is that the the events of the last few years in politics, particularly the the populism that we have seen with Donald Trump and with Bernie Sanders in particular, it feels so singular. It feels so overwhelming. But you're, you're the gist. You know, we're going to get into talking about about the book and, and the article. But we have seen some of these, you know, factors. We've seen some of the same events in 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 our history. And in fact, it's a deeper problem than that. If you want to think about it slightly more broadly. You know, the narrow corridor, the title of the book comes from the idea that the good things that we associate with many Western democracies and uh, functioning uh, market systems in the West are squeezed in a narrow corridor between either states and elites and bosses and everybody being too despotic and too powerful and laws and order and everything breaking down. And within that narrow corridor, there are continuous threats to our livelihood, flourishing democracy. And many of those threats come from the fact that as the economy changes, as uh, times change, some people will become more powerful, some people will become richer, and they will try to use whatever means they have to solidify their advantages. So you see that in every society, you see that in U.S. history. And one way, actually the most successful way that we have to defend ourselves against these things is to protest and to say, no, these things are not going very well. We want to change the regulations and the laws if they are not fair, if they are not favoring us and they're favoring a narrow group of people. And that is at the root of the populist instinct. And we have seen that uh, in the populist movement, or with, starting with the popular party and the progressive movement in the United States. We have seen that in the context of the uh, civil rights era. And we are seeing that everywhere today because we are going through another period of increasing inequality, increasing sense of people not sharing the gains and uh, not being satisfied with the system. The Gilded Age in the the late 19th century, as you said, the civil rights era and our current, some of the same factors are at work. You said like inequality, particularly the concentration of wealth, but also one of the more disturbing things too is this 
race is always there as part of the equation too. And sometimes the way the compromises that are worked out in order to evolve, in order for the society to evolve, and, you, and as you point out, it, this is a very positive thing in in, in our evolution that we you know we did tr- we did bust trust you know in, in the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, we did get civil rights laws in the mid part of the twentieth century. But there is a trade off with some of the nativist elements. Let's talk about that a little bit. Many of those protest movements are going to bring to light fairly ugly feelings that people have, especially during times when they feel grievances. Now, in the United States, because of our specific history, those ugly feelings are often, but not always, related to race. In the context of the uh, uh, later changes in the 20th century, you know, they there was a lot of the same sort of animus, but now exercised towards immigrants rather than, you know, African-Americans. So, and the progressives themselves, there were many anti-immigrant characters among them. So it's more like when you are feeding into a, a environment of generalized discontent and people are dissatisfied with existing institutions, existing order, they tend to blame the other. And the other, you know, could be people of different ethnicities, different races, different nationalities, different languages. And all of those have happened in the U.S., in U.S. history, and they have happened in other countries' histories, too. So if you look at the sort of the earlier populism in U.S. history, you know, it started with a popular party, an agrarian movement. So there was, those were the farmers who felt really dissatisfied with, uh, you know, the harshness of the conditions under which they were living, the, the fact that there were many economic downturns that affected farming really badly, and there was no way for them to sort of rectify that situation. They, there was already the mechanization of agriculture ongoing, so a lot of people were losing their jobs and livelihoods. And all of these were the original impetus. But then the progressive era, you know, that brought in the urban middle classes, uh, upwardly mobile people, people who were socially conservative and were dissatisfied and distressed by the social changes that were ongoing at the time. And somehow all of these melted into a reform pot that then pushed forward some of the most iconic changes in U.S. institutions. Uh, the direct income election tax, of senators and the Direct tax. election of senators, yeah. uh, busting of the trusts, uh, regulation of the banking industry. All of these things came out of this broad umbrella. Look at the civil rights movement. You see, this is like a, a classic case that could have really polarized U.S. society. But great leadership by many of the civil rights leaders made sure that it wasn't a struggle of black against white, but it was a broader social movement that therefore got animated by a broader set of concerns and lots of uh, middle-class white Americans really joined the African-American movement into a much more powerful social movement. So I guess the issue then is both for the U.S. and other countries that are going through their own sort of populist upheaval, how can we turn this energy into something more useful, more constructive rather than destructive? And and that's, I think, where, where we arrive at our current situation. We have two, you know, we have two very um, vocal and two very visible populist politicians in the president, Donald Trump, and also Bernie Sanders, who is 
uh, in the top tier of the candidates who are, are seeking the Democratic nomination. He's he's maybe kind of sort of, uh, you know, won the Iowa caucuses along with Pete Buttigieg. We'll, we may never know the the, the yeah, ultimate Yeah, we may never know that. and we may never care, yeah, right. but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he is certainly a force uh, in, in, in politics, in American politics. He has a following that is very durable. Uh, and, and certainly the president does, too. Let's start with the, the, the president. Hello, Manchester, and I am thrilled to be in the great state of New Hampshire with thousands of hardworking patriots who believe in God, family, and country. Thank you, thank you. And I mean, I'll some of those, what, some of the, the we, what you could see as sort of more positive aspects is that... Um, regardless of what the president's policies are, what you hear from his supporters is that I don't feel forgotten any longer. No, I think that is actually a big achievement. I mean, you know, however destructive, dangerous, and narcissistic the president may be, he did play a role in uh, giving voice to a lot of people who felt forgotten and to some degree were forgotten. And and, you, and what your 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 article and your book talks about is that like the the crisis of the the two thousand eight two thousand nine you know global financial crisis I mean laid the the groundwork for Trump that that the institutions became these things that we began to distrust because we saw them rescued while other while everybody else lost their house. I would say it as saying that was really a, a huge turning point. The reason why. I wouldn't say it's just a complete root cause is because some of those trends were ongoing way before the 2008 crisis. So if you look at U.S. inequality trends before 2008, the picture didn't look much better. We had that the rich were getting very rich for 30 years. The middle class was stagnant. So if you look at median wages for men, for instance, it was flat for essentially three decades before 2008. Inequality among wage earners had skyrocketed. And so all of these things were present before, but I think they were building up discontent at a low level, and there was some hope and some optimistic reading that somehow American institutions are going to work and their, their things are going to turn around for us. And I think what the 2008 crisis did is that it came like alcohol on an open wound, that suddenly not only things are getting much worse for us, but we see these institutions not working. We see that actually the institutions that were supposed to be working for us are working for a narrow group of bankers and uh, very rich people near the corridors of power, and we're completely forgotten and nobody cares about us. And that really then turned that, uh, you know, low-level accumulating discontent into an anger and rage. And if you if you look at the, the success of Trump and, you know, and the way that, that Bernie Sanders has modeled his campaign and, and sort of amassed this support, we're in the middle of this, this, you know, sort of classic debate, particularly with the Democratic nomination, of do you do you sort of embrace the populism of, of somebody like Bernie Sanders, who seems to animate particularly younger people? Thank you, New Hampshire. Let me, let me take this opportunity to thank the people of New Hampshire for a great victory tonight. 
Or do you go with these more pragmatic, uh, you know, I, I hate to use the term moderate. It's just such an overworked yeah. term. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, but, I know, but the, I know. But the, you know, the, the pragmatic wing or the, the moderate wing or the status quo wing of, of uh, Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar um, and, and, you know, the, the former vice president, Joe Biden, is there... Is there any way in a, in a time that is so rife with with partisanship and so animated by people thinking, no, this guy really gets it. He's angry like I'm angry. Is there any room for people like that? Well, I mean, I think, uh, uh, you know, expressing anger, expressing frustration, those are just natural things. The question, again, I come back to from the viewpoint of the book, which is that, you know, to stay in the corridor and to make institutions work for you and to to the best to create the best sorts of preconditions for liberty, both economic and uh, political, which means you know we want to have a social welfare, uh, the social safety net. We need to have protection for people who are weak. We need to find ways of creating jobs and uh, meaningful wage growth for people. All of these things. You really need a broad coalition. When it's polarization, one side versus another, everything turns into a zero-sum struggle. And when you look at history, you see several examples where you know, one side becomes extremist, and then the other side, in response, becomes even more extremist. And they say, we're going to define ourselves in exactly the opposite, and it's us or them, and it's an existential struggle. And when that happens, the very fabric of institutions start tearing apart. And I think that is the question that we need to sort of ask ourselves. Which one of the candidates or movements that stand against Trump can unite a broad segment of American public and create an agenda that's not going to be just animated by some narrow passions, but a strong enough basis that it can turn into meaningful reform. It can have the legitimacy that comes from the support of the people. You know, look at William Jennings Bryan. Okay, so he's a candidate that you can say he was the populist, the sort of the left populist of the progressive era, although he had some extremely socially conservative views. But on, you know, economic matters, redistribution, uh, you know, gold, making the economy work for the farmers and things like that, he was very much, you know, where you would say a more left populist would stand. But he, at the end, did not divide the party. He became part of the Democratic Party. He was willing not to be the nominee. He came and worked in the administration. He brought his people into a broader movement. And, and you know, his contributions were rather important for this broad coalition to emerge in the context of the later progressive era reforms. And if you look at the people who carried out the progressive era reforms, you know, you have three presidents, you know, Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, and, uh, and Tuft, and they come from three different parties, essentially. You know, that tells you that this wasn't a narrow movement that came from the wings of one of the parties. It became really a broad movement. And I think that's the question we have to ask ourselves. You know, can do we have the means to create something like that today? And if so, who will be, who could be its leader? Now, I think the answer to both of these questions is not completely obvious. First of all, the answer may be no. We live in the age of social media, Breitbart News, Fox News, uh, you know, Twitter, uh, everybody 
being a very angry and very being very manipulated, perhaps a broad coalition is going to be just just much, much, much harder to form. And if you say no, I think we don't give up hope, which that's that's the answer I would like to hear, <laughs> even if it's optimistic. Then the question is, who will be the standard bearer of that? And I don't think uh, saying, yeah, let's go with the status quo, whoever that is, is the easiest way of selling that, but going with the most extremist candidate who has ideas that are not going to appeal to the majority of Americans and are animated by people who don't have firsthand experience with politics or with the hardship that you know most of Americans are suffering, I think that's not a great recipe either. And one of the things that has always intrigued me, you know, over the last four years is seeing the, you know, Donald Trump become the most dominant figure in Republican Party politics is that um, while the parties are more, you know, homogenous than they have been at, at any point, he has still, he, I mean, with the exception of Mitt Romney uh, voting against one, you know, vo- voting to convict him on one article of impeachment, all the wings uh, represented in the, in the Republican Party closed ranks behind him, wh- whether it was Susan Collins, who is a, you know, abortion rights uh, moderate Republican from the Northeast, uh, to to the most, you know, conservative uh you know, senator from from Alabama, Richard Shelby. So, I, and and I I wonder, is there one thing that has defied sort of political gravity is that Trump has not sought to broaden his coalition. He's, if anything, he has shrunk it, and yet he is remains still very powerful. How do you is that is that sustainable? <laughs> First of all, that's mind boggling. I must say, uh, I think few people would have predicted it four years ago when you know Trump was uh, in the first stages of the primaries that if he were to become the nominee and win the presidency that the entire right of center of American politics would coalesce around him. But, you know, when you think about it, ex post, it also makes sense. I think the uh, Republican Party had somehow given up a lot of its pretensions for sort of standing for uh, some sort of values. They had changed positions as they had, they found it convenient on many of the issues. And then the way that Trump approached politics is that he really personalized it and he brought his hardest, hardest hardline supporters behind him to attack and undermine anybody within his party who would not stand with him. So, so lack of sort of uh, hardline principles on the part of the Republicans and their wish to get elected or keep their uh, sweet spot or whatever it is, and put that together with sort of Donald Trump's sort of personalistic politics, I think created an in, in, in environment where I think people in his party are afraid of him. And on the other side of the spectrum, I mean, I, and I do believe that, that there are there is a fear. I mean, they want to kind of keep, keep getting elected. Sanders doesn't have that same sort of hold on on the Democratic Party. I mean, he he's he is a sort of a singular campaigner and has that sort of support. But as a senator, I mean, recently we had Hillary Clinton who defeated him in the 2016 Democratic primary. Say, I mean, I, I think the expression is she said the quiet part out loud and said, you know, nobody likes Bernie Sanders in the Senate. Nobody wanted to work with him. I mean, is is it was this. This sort of reflection that he is—he doesn't have a broad following. He may—he may have followers on the campaign trail, 
But when you look at his record as a senator, he doesn't have this broad following. No, I think I think that's right. And also the Democratic Party, I think, you know, I'm not an expert but uh, on that, but the Democratic Party is very much more diverse than the Republican Party. So they're not going to fall in line. And I think for the vast majority of Democratic lawmakers and uh, and, and activists to fall in line with the Sanders sort of agenda seems rather far-fetched. Well, and and getting to, I mean, the, into our uh, crystal balls a little bit. <laughs> um, I mean, the, the the this history does, as as you, as you point out, history does realign. I mean, like it, it, there are correctives. I mean, the the ex- excesses of one era become the, the the things that you correct in the next. And does there is is there Given where we're at, I mean, are we ripe for one of these social realignments? There are only two options. I think we're going to either have a realignment and that will strengthen our democracy and liberties, or we're going to keep on going towards a much less palatable outcome. You know, being more familiar with the U.S. history is a little dangerous because, you know, U.S. history is by no means a perfect set of events. There are lots of bad things that have happened in our histories, lots of bad compromises, lots of periods in which people's rights were trampled and and all that. But at the end, we've never had big ruptures. We've never had fascism. We've never had communism. We've never had the most disruptive types of populism that tore down institutions. And then so we could sort of get complacent and say, well, things worked out in the progressive era, things worked out during the civil rights era. You know, we started building a, uh, a, a sort of a social safety net with the uh, war on poverty and the great society programs. Well, first of all, it's not that simple. You know, one of the compromises that our founding fathers made on slavery then led to the most, one of the most deadly conflicts in history in the, in the American Civil War. And, uh, and the country almost fell apart. And and, and and there are other countries where you know things haven't worked out so well. So I think, yeah, we have we need to have a social realignment. And there are forces that say, you know, we can make that work. But there is a real danger, especially if we have four more years of Trump. I think nobody knows what will happen to American institutions. There is a generalized lack of trust in institutions in the United States right now. So the financial crisis, its aftermath, what had gone beyond before, made many people say we cannot trust institutions. And that's really critical because when you have, as you normally do, the diverging voices, diverging opinions, different conflicts within society, the way that you overcome that is you mediate these conflicts. You find consensus, you find compromise, you find ways out by using institutions. And those are going to be political institutions, democratic institutions, they're going to be the media, they're going to be judicial institutions, and all of those would contribute to create a legitimate way out where you make some compromises, I make some compromises, we find something that we're happy with. But if that trust in institutions has collapsed, it doesn't work. It doesn't work because any compromise you don't trust, you think the other side is going to have one up for on you, you think that they are being manipulated, you think that whatever promises are made to you, they're not going to be carried through, and you really find it distasteful to work with the representatives of those institutions because you think they have sold out. And I think that's the problem, and that actually is the most dangerous part, and it's common 
between the most extreme Trump supporters and the most extreme Sanders supporters. I think what brings them together is also their view that you cannot trust U.S. institutions. That's why to Sanders supporters, moderate is a dirty word, because moderate means you work within the institutions. And I think that is really dangerous, because for fine, we need reform, we need radical thinking. We need some fundamental changes, but we have to build and strengthen institutions, not tear them apart. Well, Professor Osamoglu, thank you so much for talking to us on political theater. Uh, I I do want to mention the book uh, again. It is The Narrow Corridor, States, Societies, and the Fate of Liberty that you co-authored with James Robinson. And the the article that we uh, used to to get a, a, a quick and dirty on it is the upside of populism, and it's in the fall 2019 issue of Foreign Policy. Thank you so much for, for walking us through it. Thank you very much, Jason. It was my pleasure. Thanks again for listening to this podcast. We will be back next week. In the meantime, if you'd like to subscribe to us, you can find us on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, wherever you happen to get your podcasts. Political Theater is produced by CQ Roll Call, a leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is owned by Fiscal Note, a global technology and media company.